Amen. Do take up uh, your Bibles. We're going to read from the Scriptures, from Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to begin at verse 21. You can find it if you've got church Bibles in front of you on page 1176. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So reads the word of God. Well, do let's uh, take our Bibles and turn to those verses that we read earlier, Ephesians 5, 21 to uh, 33. We come, uh, we are, if you're visiting with us, we have been working uh, largely in our evenings through the summer. Uh, we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians. And uh, one of the, the things that that does is it brings before you uh, passages that a preacher might choose not to turn to immediately. Uh, it might skip over, uh, but uh, we have this in front of us this evening. It's a very, very important passage. deals with marriage. We know that uh, marriage is one of those places where uh, Christian teaching is most directly clashing at the moment with current uh, social values. So it's very, very important that we get to grips with what the Bible says about marriage and what God's vision for marriage is. Now, this is not a, a, an isolated pamphlet on marriage. It is part of the flow of uh, the thought of this letter written by the Apostle Paul. And you remember the overall structure of this letter. If we uh, remember back a few weeks ago, we said something about this. Uh, Paul uh, habitually uh, tends to spend the first part of his letters saying, effectively, this is what God has done. This is what God has done for you. This is the, the good news of the gospel. And then he turns in the second half of his letters and he says, now, now this is what this means in your life. This is how this should affect you. This is how you're to live in the light of it. And here, for example, we saw back in chapter 4, verse 1, that he begins to say, now, now that God has saved you in this way, not by your own doing, but by God's doing, by his grace, now that God has done this, you should respond by living a worthy life. He, he says that in chapter 4, verse 1. And uh, that worthy life, as we've been seeing over these weeks, uh, involves a number of things. It involves unity with brothers and sisters, uh, that we work hard on our relationships with one another. It involves personal holiness and transformation, putting away our sin and, and living more and more to righteousness. And it involves a, a spirit-filled life, as he says in chapter 5, verse 18. 
And what we're looking at, therefore, this evening is part of this ongoing unpacking of a worthy life. We'll see this week and all being well next week that that involves some of the key relationships that we might have within our lives, marriage, family, work. You see the early verses of chapter 6 deal with children and parents and slaves and masters. There are these little pairs of relationships, wives and husbands, that were in front of us this evening, children and parents, and then slaves and masters. And so, so Paul is saying, now how you conduct yourselves in these particular arenas of life, these are part of the outworking of the gospel. This is part of what it means to live a worthy life. Christ has come into your life. Now you live for him in these various areas. And in order to best understand, I think, what Paul says here, we'll be helped if we step back for a moment and, and try to paint in very, very broad brushstrokes uh, what the Bible says about marriage generally. And because it's such a contested issue today, we, we might find that helpful. Uh, one of the uh, uh, things that will set you apart from many of your colleagues, for example, in the office or, or, or wherever you work, uh, will be perhaps your views on, on marriage. In fact, some of your uh, friends and colleagues might think that what you believe, if they were to know what you believe, that, that what you believe is, is, is not just quaint, but is actually damaging uh, and dangerous. Uh, on the other hand, I think one of the things we need to understand is that, that this all presents a, a little bit of an opportunity for us because we've got to say that the, the values that the world has been promoting in these areas have not got a very good track record. They have produced relational chaos and broken hearts, damaged kids. And one of the things that we've got to believe as Christians is that God knows what we believe, God knows what we need, and His, His words, therefore, to us are words of, of life, and they are really intended for human flourishing. So, so what would we say if we wanted to say something about a God about a a Christian view of marriage. Well, quite simply, first of all, it it is something that God has ordained. God has has set up. Marriage is instituted by God. It's not a human invention. Uh, We should understand God bringing Eve to Adam in the Garden of Eden as a marriage, the first marriage. Uh, Jesus understood it this way in Matthew 19 when he was being uh, asked about divorce uh, by the Pharisees. He quoted Genesis, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Jesus is demonstrating that, that Genesis and the creation pattern is to be normative of a whole host of things that concern human flourishing. That mankind is male and female, for example. That marriage is between one man and one woman. And as they come together in marriage, they they, they form a, a new unit that supersedes prior family bonds. That, that marriage is to be lifelong, and, and though as other parts of the Bible say, there are some regrettable circumstances where the breaking of a marriage is permissible. It is to be entered into with a lifelong view. These things are, are not just given to us to show us how God wants them to be, but we understand that they are in some way sort of hardwired into us so that to go against them is to 
to do ourselves harm. To, to, to live outside of these sorts of patterns is in some way to, to go against the very grain that is built into us. And because it is given to us right at the beginning, and therefore before the fall, we sometimes say that, that what God says here about marriage is what we call a creation ordinance. It's, it's there built into the fabric of creation before sin entered the world. And, and in other words, it's for all people. And marriage is not just for Christian people. And so in, in certain circumstances, if, if two people who are not Christians uh, come to us and say, would you conduct our, our marriage? We will say, yeah, we, we would love to be able to do that because we believe that marriage is a creation ordinance. It's good for them and for our world. But what we also see in the Bible is that marriage is a, a public union, uh, the shape that, that uh, it, it follows. The shape of that public union uh, uh, varies across location and time, but usually there is some sort of public commitment with a legal tie-in and social recognition. In other words, uh, two young people can't sit on the bench in the park and whisper some things to each other and say, do you know what, we're married now. Might be very handy, certainly a lot cheaper. Um, but but uh, it, it needs to be legally recognized and done in such a way that others are, are part of it. So, so there, there's the first sort of thing to say. Marriage is God-ordained, and we are not, therefore, at liberty to, to reinvent it. Then, then we need to say something about what is marriage for, and here we have God-ordained, uh, for children, for intimacy, and for society, for children. The marriage ceremony says this, it was ordained for the holy ordinance of family life so that children who are a heritage of the Lord should be duly nurtured and trained up in godliness. We'll say more about God's purpose for family life next week, all being well, but God has ordained that uh, children should normally grow up with a mom and a dad who would encourage them to follow Jesus. The Bible speaks about God seeking godly offspring. It's, it's one of the ways in which his people grow. Not every marriage is given children. When that uh, fails to happen, it's often a heavy burden. But, but children flourish best where parents are together and living in marriage. So marriage is for children. Marriage is for intimacy. Marriage is the proper setting for sexual intimacy. Sex outside of marriage is, is always wrong. And so if that young couple who are sitting on the bench in Lurgan Park are saying, I wonder should we wait? Um, because we're going to get married someday. I wonder should we wait to have sex? Yes, they should. It's what the Bible says. But within marriage, it is a good gift that strengthens marriage and also, and we see something of that here, portrays something of the delight that Christ takes in his bride, the church. So, so marriage is for intimacy. And then marriage is for society. Again, the marriage ceremony says that uh, society can be strong and healthy only where the marriage bond is held in honor. And uh, as I said earlier, the downgrading of sort of uh, Christian marriage and, and the multiplication of alternative ways of living have, have just produced countless difficulties. And what we might not have realized is that the cohesion in society, which has so changed over our lifetimes and certainly over the lifetimes of those of us who are older, it is the lack of cohesion in our society is due in no little fashion to the downgrading of marriage. 
the, the presence of stable families in society is just like a, a really solid brick in a wall. And whenever you try to build a wall with little pebbles and so on, it doesn't go so well. Now, now there are other purposes for marriage, but uh, those are the main ones that the Bible speaks about and the ones that are traditionally highlighted. And, and then one last thing to say, just I think as we sketch out some of the big things about marriage, is that marriage is an ultimate. And in two ways, uh, marriage is an ultimate. First of all, uh, we ought not to idolize marriage. Hollywood and Disney, on the one hand, they, they undermine marriage, they undermine relationships, we know that. But they also tend to idolize it, don't they? You know, generation of girls grow up, think of themselves as princesses, uh, who, who will not be complete until Prince Charming rides in to fulfill their dreams. And one of the dangers then is that, that couples who come together have these sorts of Disney-like expectations and look to their spouse to provide for them what only Christ can provide. If you're looking to another human being to provide for you meaning and satisfaction and, and ultimate deep joy, you will be disappointed. Your husband and your wife or your wife was, was, was never intended to be your savior. And we've got to be careful not to idolize marriage and suggest it is this, this sort of the ultimate state of being. And, and then we might also add that that marriage is not ultimate in the sense that it is not necessary. There are marvelous examples in the Bible and in life that indicate that a person can live a full life and not be married. Jesus is our example here, isn't he? Let's remember that he is the perfect man, a perfect man who was a virgin, who was never married, think too of, of Paul whenever he was talking about marriage said to those he was writing to I wish that you could be as I am and, and he was indicating there uh, about marriage that, that he was single that, that, that either he was single or he was widowed and he said I wish that you could be as I am because he was conscious that, that his situation provided particular opportunities for him to serve the Lord that he would not have had had he been married and I think we all know of people who have had enormous impact for the gospel, for the kingdom of God who've been single. Think of my dear friend, Noel Ignew. I miss him dreadfully. Noel was mentioned, oddly, at this general assembly three times by three uh, different people, one of them me, actually. And, and, and uh, huge impact for the gospel. We know other people like that. Uh, Sam Albury, a single chap, he was speaking at Keswick this year. Sam Albury's written a, a marvelous, marvelous book uh, called Seven Myths About Singleness. And I really would commend it to you. It's, it's not only a book about singleness, it's a book about marriage, a book about relationships, a book about what it means to be human. Super, super helpful. And Sam Albury, a, a tremendous uh, writer and speaker. And I think it's important just to underline that, that we say marriage is not ultimate. And so, for example, if you're part of a group of people and a group of friends and someone gets engaged and you say congratulations, that's great. You should say that, of course. But, but don't then turn to your single friend and say, well, when's this going to happen to you? Because it might not be God's intention for them. It would be wrong of you to give them the impression that a full Christian life involves marriage. 
So when the Bible talks about marriage, these are some of the things that we can say. It envisages one man, one woman, lifelong union, recognized uh, by others. Now, it's within that sort of broad framework that this passage and other passages that deal about marriage sit. So let's look at it a little bit more closely. There are, are basically two calls here for the people who are addressed in this passage, wives and husbands. Wives are called to submit and husbands are called to love. So that's what we're going to think about. I'm going to look at each in turn. Now, something again that I've read that's been super, super helpful has been an article by uh, Rebecca McLaughlin. Some of you have read some of her, her books that are, again, excellent. And uh, the, the uh, passage, the, the little article, I think I'll put it up on our social media perhaps after the service, uh, Confessions of a Reluctant Complementarian, it's called. And she, she recounts as a, a very, very gifted and able and, and uh, leading woman her struggles with this particular passage, wives submit to your husbands. And at the same time, she was aware that she couldn't quite understand the Bible in any other way than the sorts of ways that we're going to sort of set out here this evening. And I would really encourage you to read that. As I say, I'll put it up on our Facebook feed later on. So, first of all, let, let's think about the first part, submission. You see that verse 21 uh, says, submitting out of, uh, to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, the, the, the scholars have debated whether that is a summary of what has gone before. Don't forget that the, 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 the section divisions are, are, were not in the original text, nor were the verse numbers and chapters and so on. So, uh, sometimes where uh, verses belong is a little matter of, of uh, debate. But uh, is verse 21 the summary of what has gone before, or is it the introduction to what follows? And, and it may well be that it's sort of both. It's a sort of a bridge between one section and the next. And, and uh, because there we've been saying, here's the spirit-filled life. And now it's saying the spirit-filled life involves, uh, one way or another, submission to one another. And then it goes on to unpack what that submission looks like. And you'll see that, that submission is the thing that holds these uh, three little pairs together, wives to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters. Now, this is incredibly countercultural, of course, and the idea of submission of any kind does not sit well with us today in our self-assertive uh, world. But actually, this call to submit is a call to all Christians, isn't it? And that's why it says here, submit to one another uh, out of reverence for Christ. John Stopp uh, emphasizes our general submissiveness to one another. He says, there's to be a mutual submissiveness that just pervades all Christian relationship, and it flows from the life of Christ. Christ, after all, gave his life for us. And so in Philippians 2, Paul writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider each other better than yourselves. There's just this sort of, I, I'm small, you're more important than me. Uh, this attitude that should be in each of our hearts. David Paulinson, uh, some of us would know David Paulinson from the, sort of the biblical counseling world. He, he writes very, very helpfully on this passage, and he points out that, that every believer, whether you're male or female, every believer is in one sense a wife, a child, and a servant or a slave. A wife, a child, or a slave, and a slave. Uh, a wife, all believers, male and female, 
are part of the church, which is what? The bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. Christ is our bridegroom. We, we are also children. We are children of the Lord. That's an image that we're fairly familiar with. We relate to God as Father, don't we? And, and then we are servants of the Lord, or, or slaves, it's the same sort of word, and we relate to Him as Master. So you see, we're, we're all, in some senses, uh, wives and children and, and, and slaves. And, and therefore, this level of submission, at some level, this uh, submission to the Lord is an attitude that must be in all of our hearts. Rebe- Rebecca McLaughlin says this, if the gospel is true, none of us come to the table with rights. The only way in, so here, if you're, if you're sort of listening or you're here and you're sort of weighing up Christianity, you're thinking, oh, I wonder, can I come to Christ and maintain something of my independence. Well, it's going to be a bit of a disappointment. If the gospel is true, none of us come to the table with rights. The only way in is flat on your face. If I want to hold on to my fundamental right to self-determination, I must reject the message of Jesus because he calls me to submit completely to him, to deny myself and take up my cross and follow him. So you see, this submission is, is part of what it means to be a Christian. And at the same time, Paulison points out that most of us have a whole web of relationships in which, in some cases, we have sort of authority. We are responsible for someone or something. And then in other relationships, we are submissive. There is someone who, is in a sense, is over us. So in work, for example, you might get up from your desk and move from one room to the next, and, and the relationship between those that you were with change from one in which you had authority and you go into another room and, and then you find that you are the one who is submitting because somebody else has authority. And, and so this idea of, of submitting to others in some senses ought not to be strange to us. And it wasn't strange in the ancient world, certainly not in the way that, that it, it would have come across for, for the particular people that are mentioned here, women and children and slaves. In the ancient world, their position was, was dreadful. They were people under authority and sometimes under very abusive authority. And so that call for them to submit was not new in that sense. But what was new was Paul's insistence that they do so gladly and as an outworking of the gospel. And they don't just, as it were, in the workplace, see their boss sitting there and say, well, I'm going to do what you say because you pay me. But they actually see Jesus. And they say, Jesus, you've put this relationship into my life here. And so I'm doing this for for you, you see. Now, let me point out here that, that so many things we need to say. You see what the text says? It says, submit to your husband or your own husband. Not husbands in general, not men in general. This is calling for how things are to work out in a marriage relationship. And the reasons given are not cultural or or missional to say, well, this is the way it is for now and it might change, or or this works for now and it might change. The reasons given are twofold. One implies a pattern in male and female relationships within marriage. And one is connected to the relation of Christ and the church. You see? 
Now, without question, this has been dreadfully abused. And we want to say that. And dreadfully misunderstood. Occasionally, I hear accounts of how women and and wives have been treated and mistreated. Supposedly, sometimes by believing husbands. And and it's, it's awful. And there is a time for saying, that's enough. There's a time for calling the elders and saying, I want you to know what's going on. There's a time for calling the police. There's a time for getting out and staying safe. It's been dreadfully abused. But where that happens, it is a dreadful misuse of what the Bible is saying here. This idea of of authority here, as John Stott says, is not tyranny. It, It is ultimately responsibility. And the husband, as Stott says, is not to be an ogre, but a lover. So think about what Paul says then to the husband, not just submission, but then love. In, an ancient, in a sense, to the ancient ear, the call for a wife or a child to submit was not surprising. But what is said to husbands would have been surprising, and it's radical in extent. The husband is to love his wife. And he's to do that to an amazing degree. He's told this three times here. And he's to love her not just a little, but remarkably. He's to love her not just like the guy next door loves his wife or or like the person in the movies loves his wife. He's to love her as Christ loved the church. How does Christ do that? He, he loves the church sacrificially and humbly and painfully. He gives his life. It's a Calvary love. So, so this is not a husband pictured here who, who demands, but a husband who gives. And Christ's love, you see here in this passage, comes with a purpose. You see, it's in order that, that he would present the church to himself in splendor, verse 27. It's a, it's a love that has purpose. Christ loved the church to being spotless and blameless. And the fruit of a husband's love will be seen in his wife, not in that she is a meek dormouse who's had her spirit broken, What a travesty. But in someone who has been enabled more and more to be the person that God has made her to be, someone spurred on to to love God more and more and serve Him better and and fulfill her calling in Christ to flourish. And Paul earths this very realistically here. He must love his wife as he loves himself. Uh, Loving one's own body here is not about how one feels. It's not about self-image, but about what one does. It's, It's feeding and clothing, isn't it? We make sure we eat and so on. Our needs are met. And Paul is saying, do the same for your wife, man. Make sure all her needs are met. Because in a relationship where two have become one, it's not as if you can properly really think about my needs and her needs. It's your needs together, isn't it? There is a profound mystery here. It's pointing to something. We're not saying much about it. And that is that it is, as Christian marriage works as God intends, it points to something much greater. It points to the love that Christ has for the church. 
And the way he ties himself to us is an unbreaking covenant. We should see husbands doing that and, and, and then saying, do you know what? There's something Christ-like about that. The, the way Christ loves is with this self-giving Calvary love. We should see husbands doing that and, and making people say, goodness, that's not even normal. It's, it's divine, isn't it? The way he unites us to himself and delights in us. It's a, it's a divine thing. Marriage is supposed to make us think of this heavenly union, you see. And then Paul brings it down to earth again for both husband and wife. Verse 33, as he finishes here. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife's wife must respect her husband. These people equal in the sight of God, but with different roles and responsibilities. And yet I think they're not so far apart in reality. I find this super helpful. I I have to say, I I talked to Katrina last night and said, you know, I really struggle to articulate how how does this work in practice? And, And John Stott said here that the wife's submission is but another aspect of love. And this is what he says. What does it mean to submit? It is to give oneself up to someone. What does it mean to love? It is to give oneself up to somebody as Christ gave himself up for the church. And thus, he says, submission and love are two aspects of the very same thing, namely of that selfless self-giving which is the foundation of an enduring and growing marriage. This mutual self-giving to which husband and wife are called. And, and, and as that happens, there's, there's a little bit of, of, of reclaim of Eden. Remember what happened um, at the fall. After the fall, God speaks to the serpent and to the woman, to the man, says different things to them. And, and, and to the woman, he says, you might remember, your desire, this rather cryptic verse, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And it's been a very difficult verse to translate and understand. But it seems to be, it's certainly speaking about the strife that the fall introduces between the husband and the wife. Into the relationship between the man and the woman. And it seems to be saying that it takes a particular shape. Not not in every case, but in general. Each seek to control the other. Where there is strife, the woman will seek to control her husband maybe by manipulating or arguing. And the man will seek to control his wife by dominating her and throwing his weight around. Isn't that what we see? It seems to be saying something like that. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. There'll be this tension. You'll want to control each other, but you'll not approach it in the same way. One will do it this way. One will do it that way. And and obviously there are exceptions to the rule, but but that's what sometimes strife looks like. And yet what have we been looking at? A marriage where the very opposite of that takes place. Where a wife who does not seek to control but submits, and a man who does not throw his weight around but loves sacrificially. So this pattern of Christian marriage, you see, is contrary to the curse. It's a little bit of Eden contrary to the sinful patterns that we so easily fall into. Well, there's so much here that we could talk about. We'll talk about it after church, hopefully tonight. But 
But four things to take away as we, as we finish. First of all, the, the gospel is to work itself out in every area of our lives. Every area of our lives. It doesn't stop at the door of our home. You know, the, 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 that person to whom you, you, you hear someone say to you, oh, yeah, yeah, you, you know him on a Sunday. But I live with him through the weekend. He's not so Christian then. The gospel does not stop at the door of our homes. It affects us in all places. And we need to repent and believe and grow in our public life. We need to repent and be- believe and grow in our, in, our, in our home life. We need to repent and believe and grow on a Sunday and then through the week, don't we? Gospel works itself out in all areas of our lives. The uh, second thing is m- marriage is an arena. If we're married, it is an arena for us to grow in our knowledge of God. Marriage is like like anything else in all of our lives, is one of those circumstances that God has allowed us to be in in order that we might grow. And I guess it's possible for us to grow because of our marriage, through our marriage, or, or, or in spite of it, or indeed not to grow at all. But we really want to grow through it, don't we? And so if you're married, maybe a conversation with your husband or your wife about how you might do that better, that that would be helpful. Marriage is an arena for us to grow in our knowledge of God. The third thing is, and this is for those of us who are single, don't, don't settle for someone that you can't journey down this path with. If you're at the point where you're able to choose a life partner, hearing this, you'll want to think about the type of person you choose to do this with. Because a minister standing at the front of the church and asking you some questions will not change the direction of someone's heart. So you choose well. And then fourthly, and this is so important, none of us do this perfectly, nor do we even come close. We, we, we must aim high, mustn't we? Because Christ came low for us. But as we, as we say these things, as we look at these things, as we, we hear the standards of Scripture, as we hear the, the things to which we're called as, as, as wives and husbands, we go, oh, Lord, so far to go. So many mistakes. So many things to say sorry for to my spouse, but, but to you. So many things to repent of. But, Lord, I want to aim high because you came low for me. He, he rescued us. He, the, 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 the great lover who sought us. And for his bride, he bled and died. And so we trust him and we repent before him and we seek his help. None of us can do this perfectly or even close, but we look to him to give us help. Well, let's take a moment to pray together.